Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today, I have this pleasure of speaking with Dr. Aaron Critch, Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Critch was the author of this paper titled, Platelet-Rich Plasma and Marrow Venting May Serve as a Cost-Effective Augmentation Technique for Isolated Meniscal Repair, a Decision Analytical Markov Model-Based Analysis, which is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. Critch, and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Justin, for having us. I'd just like to really emphasize I'm presenting on behalf of our entire author team uh, to the listeners of Arthroscopy. I'd just like to recognize the outstanding work of our lead author, Jake Odin, on this manuscript as well. Great. Certainly, this is a pretty complicated uh, modeling technique that I'm not as familiar with, and I'm sure it took a lot of legwork and reading the background, you guys really did it the right way. So congratulations on that. And, and, you know, mentioning that first thing I really wanted to ask you about is, can you just tell us a little bit about the modeling and Markov modeling, what it is and what these modeling studies provide for us and how they work? Yeah, I, I think that's a good place to start. Um, I would let people know that, you know, it's really about the goal of what the Markov model can do. And it's really about to add cost to an outcomes model to determine, you know, if really one treatment is cost effective over another. So in general, the way this is uh, set up is, you know, Markov models are decision trees. And we just model clinical courses of treatment really as transition between discrete health states based on probability events over a specific period. So what it means in this meniscus repair study is we take an event like an isolated meniscus repair. Um, we then look at its outcome, either success or failure, failure uh, leading to you know, further surgery with partial meniscectomy. And we look at the estimated probabilities based on papers and data and the literature and really try to play this model out. Uh, and in this case, we use two years as our time horizon to really determine was there a cost effectiveness difference between different treatment options for an isolated meniscus repair. It's definitely the future. I think it's a great opportunity to have kind of big data and, and set up the appropriate um, outcomes that we really want to boil down to. So tell us a little bit of how you got interested in uh, meniscus repair and uh, cost and this study in the biologics. What was the background of it? Yeah, so I think, you know, when we look at the landscape in recent years, um, it's definitely shifted to more focus on trying to save the meniscus, obviously trying to repair it if possible. Uh, particularly in an isolated setting in a younger patient, which is really the topic, you know, of this paper. Um, we've talked about different strategies to improve healing rates, you know, with biologic augmentation, such as PRP, you know, marrow venting procedure, fiber clot, different things. And really, to date, the data has been mixed on the treatment effect for these strategies. Um, as you know, uh, third-party payers aren't often reimbursing for PRP augmentation of isolated meniscus repairs. So what we really wanted to do is try to get something more definitive that not only looked at cost, but also effectiveness of these biologic augmentation strategies, you know, a bit more closely. And hence, we thought the Markov model was the best way to look at this. Yes, yeah, certainly the only way we can get them to pay for some of these things is, is studies like this. It's really important. You know, diving into some of the details about the model and, and the studies you guys used and everything, I wanted to just ask a few questions how did you guys pick the age 25 to 35 years old? And then, you know, I noticed there were kind of three studies you guys utilized um, to help um, use this model and, and basically 
uh, bring it to fruition. Just tell us a little bit about how that, how that uh, basically is set up. Yeah. So first um, you mentioned the age, Justin. So um, we evaluated patients, you know, again, this is a theoretical analysis. So we wanted to choose inputs that were clinically relevant. And that obviously for us starts with a patient. So we would all agree, I think, that a young adult aged like 25 to 35 that sustains a traumatic isolated meniscus repair, you know, would be best served with a meniscus preservation with repair, if at all possible. Um, the second factor to consider is when you perform Markov modeling, you need to have, you know, published data and estimates available. So we needed to also choose a patient that was going to closely match the cohorts of outcomes that are currently published. Um, you mentioned that we, you know, chose three studies. So we, you know, systematically looked at all of the data available and what we really wanted were decision trees and assumptions and estimates that really, again, mimicked real life. So we wanted to include young patients, as we mentioned, we wanted isolated meniscus repairs without ACL injuries and really no arthritis or cartilage injuries. And we kind of wanted to exclude degenerative tears, discoid meniscus type of tears, so while there were other, you know, systematic reviews available, um, really when you looked at the factors that we wanted above to, you know, really isolate the effect of biologic, biologic augmentation, uh, we chose these three papers. As you mentioned, uh, I did a uh, review for JOS, I guess maybe two years ago or so, and it's really surprising how few studies there are with these isolated meniscal repairs and it's something we really uh, struggle with. And as you mentioned as well before about the mixed literature with biologics and, you know, I think some of us take for granted, um, some of these studies are less impressive than what we would hope. And, you know, I noticed uh, you, you uh, noted that your PRP augmented repairs, the failure rate was set at 10.8% uh, and then 27% without PRP. Tell us a little bit about your kind of gestalt and your experience. Have you seen failure rates similar to that or what are your thoughts about failure rates in these isolated repairs? Yeah, I, I would say it's important to mention here that, you know, these failure rates were representative of, of two-year outcomes after an isolated meniscus repair. Um, so if you look at the inverse of this, that means the success rate would be, you know, 73 to 90% for an isolated meniscus repair, which, which I think, you know, honestly reflects the outcomes of my practice. Um, I think we have to keep in mind, though, that we are repairing more and more complex tears in younger and younger patients. Uh, both variables, both young age and complexity of tear, are going to drive up the failure rate of our repairs. So I think, you know, when you discuss this with patients, I mean, clearly there's a zero chance of saving a meniscus if it's in your shaver tubing. Um, but I feel that these success rates, you know, would be valued by most patients when you when you have a discussion with them. Yeah, right. That's for sure. Just when people have uh, discussions about rotator cuff tears, they say 50% of them are going to get worse, but 50% of them aren't going to get worse. So <laughs> you know, if you look at the, I know it's pretty obvious, but um, we certainly want to get better. Now, tell us um, some of the main takeaways from your study and has, has this changed your practice at all? The, the findings that you guys uh, came up with from this Markov model? Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to simplify it for the listeners out there, and certainly they can dive into the paper a little bit more depth. Um, so with isolated meniscus repair, we definitely saw that biologic augmentation resulted in higher number of qualities or quality-adjusted life years and overall costs when you compared it to non-augmented isolated meniscus repair, um, really suggesting that biologic augmentation was cost-effective. 
Uh, specifically, we looked at the number of qualities um, was the highest with PRP augmentation, which we found was very interesting. Um, when you looked at total costs, however, the Merrill venting were actually the lowest in the three groups. Um, therefore, when you looked at these two biologic treatments, one really didn't dominate over another. Uh, typically, when you look at dominance in a Markov model, it's, you know, you want both clinical superiority, i.e. higher effectiveness and cost savings with overall lower costs. And, you know, this was kind of a split decision, if we will. Um, we did determine that the cost savings of PRP application, you know, over the two-year time horizon of the study did not be fall below what we call the willingness to pay threshold. So typically $50,000 um, is used as the willingness to pay threshold that's been established in other studies. So it, it did not reach that threshold. Um, so really based on the current published failure rates, uh, we found that Merrill venting was actually the lowest cost effective strategy in treating young patients with isolated uh, repairs in the study. That's an awesome, awesome summary. One thing that I uh, noticed in the study, which I'm sure is based on the Markov model, they mentioned, or you guys mentioned that there was a $5,000 difference with Meroventing. Uh, tell us, I'm just more curious, is, is, what's the background with that? Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing this point up because here is where it gets a little bit more complicated. So when you report costs of a Markov model study, these are reflective of the overall treatment costs for that time horizon, which again is two years in this study. So for example, the upfront cost of PRP, you know, we estimated about $1,000 in this study, which is clearly more expensive than you know, marrow venting procedure or obviously no augmentation at the time of surgery. Um, however, uh, when we looked at the probability of failure, you know, this was the smallest in the PRP group. So there was less cost accrued you know, for the recurrent valuation, if you have a failure of MRI, office visits, uh, subsequent partial meniscectomy. So this explains how a, a less expensive treatment option, you know, just talking about the cost of the initial procedure may actually end up resulting in higher total costs um, than a treatment option that was slightly more expensive upfront, uh, which is what we saw in this study. The non-augmented procedures actually cost the most in terms of a two-year timeline. Yeah, that's, that's a great explanation. It's um, a lot easier to hear from, from you than just from the paper directly. You know, I've tried a few different personally, uh, you know, Meroventic techniques, um, not to jump ahead too far, but um, what are your thoughts about uh, Meroventing and are you doing it and, and how are you doing it versus some of these uh, drill techniques with a shaver or an awl or uh, more of a longer night and all wire type drill? Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I think, you know, as we're recognizing it provides value, you know, different um, types of techniques have uh, really emerged. And I think the goal remains, you want to deliver cellular elements from the bone marrow. Uh, and this hopefully will provide a fibrin clot, you know, at the repair site. Um, and we want delivery of growth factors ultimately over initial healing. So uh, really the goal is to get bleeding in the notch. And certainly you can use a microfracture all but, you know, sometimes this impacts the bone, you know, which doesn't cause a lot of, you know, uh, visualized bleeding. So what you mentioned, you know, you could consider a wire, um, a cannulated drill bit actually works the best because it actually removes bone and keeps the channel open. So you really see a lot of uh, bleeding there. Uh, regardless, uh, what I would <laughs> tell people is to stay away from the PCL. Um, I did have a case where a patient developed a symptomatic cyclops lesion 
um, and I think I was too close to the PCL. So I used more of the lateral wall, you know, uh, distal to the ACL, um, just to avoid any sort of um, heterotopic site block lesion that might form. Oh, very good advice. I'm glad I I'm glad we chatted about that. That's that's good to to learn from from others. So, you know, you mentioned before about the PRP a thousand dollars. You know, I saw your average cost. You saw between five hundred and fifteen hundred dollars. Um, have you? Do you think those prices have gone down anymore since these studies have been published? Or tell us a little bit about how you use biologics in your practice. You know, it's certainly difficult, like you alluded to, with with payers being difficult and or just your overall thought process with, with using those just uh, in real practice in our own practices. Yeah, I, I think like any technology, you know, certainly costs have come down over time. Um, the challenge remains, there's so much variability and heterogeneity in the final product, you know, being delivered. So for example, some lesser expensive kits may not concentrate platelets as much as more expensive kits. And I think Ultimately, as a surgeon, as a clinician, we need to be familiar with the intricacies of the system that we're using. Um, for this study in particular, uh, what I'll just mention is we did perform a sensitivity analysis to determine if the cost of biologic augmentation would affect the overall success of this model. And from that analysis, what we determined is actually the success rate variable that has the greatest impact on outcome in the decision tree analysis is the success rate of the meniscus repair. So specifically, if PRP augmentation um, really um, causes like 33% less failure um, than the currently published success rates, then it would become the dominant treatment strategy in terms of higher effectiveness and overall lower cost. So it wasn't the upfront cost of the PRP, it was more in how that affected the success rate of the outcome of the isolated meniscus repair. A great summary, and it certainly gets more complicated than just using PRP or not PRP. There's so many different uh, systems, and and we we learn so much every day about the additives, and and we, we could talk for hours about that uh, as well. You know, a, another topic that um, we could talk about for a long time, and is certainly not um, well established, is just approach to meniscus repair. You alluded to you know saving the meniscus, which you know, we all uh, are, are trying to do. Tell us about your kind of thought process regarding age and patience and your repair technique. How do you approach these menisci that are in these uh, more younger age groups and your repair strategies and thought processes? Yeah, so what I would say, Justin, it's, it's a great time to be a meniscus surgeon. You know, we have a lot more tools. Um, I think we have a better understanding overall, you know, of meniscus repair and um, that being said, we have to realize that not all meniscus tears, you know, are repairable. Certainly there are some selective tear patterns that can do quite well. Partial meniscectomy, primarily where you have a good functioning, you know, healthy rim of meniscus left. Um, just like you mentioned, where we need to push the envelope is really, um, in those meniscus tear types where the meniscus biomechanically is no longer functioning. So whether that's a root tear, a radial, a radial oblique tear, um, for me, I do that in settings, particularly in the lateral compartment. We know the lateral compartment is much more sensitive to any meniscus loss and in really that young patient. So for me, it's that young patient lateral meniscus tears where we really have to do a better job of trying to get the meniscus to heal. Um, just recognizing again that, you know, we won't be a hundred percent successful in all cases. 
Uh, certainly it's tricky um, depending on the patient and pressures from, from parents and patients about playing sports. And um, I was curious, you know, there's been some more interest and I've done it a few times of some of these horizontal type tears where the meniscus looks fairly healthy, you know, not necessarily a 65 year old arthritic person, but have, have you done many of the hay bill type suture uh, techniques for horizontal tears and do you prefer inside out versus all inside? I know the literature, you know, kind of can say we, we do, do, can do both. Yeah, I think that's, it's really a great topic. And I, I do perform, you know, repair of horizontal cleavage tears. I think when you look at the biomechanics, you know, when you remove a single leaflet, it profoundly impacts the lateral side more. Uh, particularly, it happens at the popliteus hiatus. When you resect a single leaflet, um, really you're increasing contact pressure substantially. So I think we need to repair them if possible, you know, in terms of all inside versus inside out, I, I think a meniscus surgeon really needs to be familiar with all techniques and have, you know, really all the tools in your toolbox on the lateral side, you know, I try to maintain the normal mobility of the meniscus. So in regard to a horizontal cleavage tear, that means maybe an all inside kind of knot tying technique where we're not tethering it to the capsule perhaps, but as soon as that tear pattern starts to come a little bit more anterior into the body, anterior horn, certainly that's not possible. And that's, again, I think where it's important just to have the entire toolbox as a meniscus surgeon. That's a certainly a good point. I know uh, one study that was done here in Pittsburgh with uh, Volker Musal, he was a big uh, kind of ramp fixer and, you know, his lab, uh, really give it to him, his, his lab, he looked at the normal motion of the meniscus and maybe it's worse if we're plastering, you know, these menisci back to the capsule, making them too tight. Uh, you know, some of the data with um, more posterior lateral tears with ACL certainly is um, off topic here, but it's not as simple as just, you know, stitching it back as tight as you can. So that's a, it's a great point about the more uh, all inside situation with knot tying, even though we don't love the knots there, maybe that's, maybe that's better. So, you know, to talk about more about your practice specifically, um, tell us what you do in your practice. Do you use PRP or fiber and clot, or do you, have you ever tried BMAC in some of these? And, and are you a believer in some of these biologic augmentations uh, to use in your own practice and our practices with isolated meniscal tears? Yeah, I would say yes. Um, you know, our our paper supports uh, certainly their use, and certainly there have been you know other authors uh, demonstrating the positive benefits. I think you know before you get into you know kind of the biologic augments to me are kind of the the cherry on top, if you will. Uh, but we really need to focus on on the basics. You know, we need an anatomic reduction. We need a good biologic preparation. So spending some time rasping the meniscus tear, the synovium, the surrounding tissue. And then really getting a good, you know, circumferential compression. So I think those basics are important. And then beyond that, when it's an isolated tear, you know, clearly uh, biologic augmentation, um, you know, seems to work better than no augmentation. For me, uh, bone marrow aspirate uh, concentrate, I, there's really not enough data for me to use it, you know, in patients. Um, at the minimum, I think everybody should be using, you know, marrow venting. I mean, clearly that's uh, been showing a benefit. And then the question is really PRP. When do we use PRP? And I, I do use it um, when we have an isolated tear, maybe a more complex tear. I think it comes down to doing what's right for the patient. And for me, there's enough data out there to support its use. And 
I'll advocate, um, you know, for reimbursement in those settings where we really need that meniscus to heal. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and um, again, maybe a little off topic, but do you have any advice about working with your system or how uh, do you discuss ahead of time as the patient get billed? Um, or how does that work in your system? It really probably depends on your hospital and, and how that cost really gets dispersed. Yeah, uh, the advice I'd give for you as a surgeon is, you know, get to know the resources at, at your own place. Um, for example, there might be billers, coders, um, administrators that would be very helpful. It's always better to have those discussions up front um, with them because uh, make them your ally. And I think if you, you know, can arm yourself with, with data and the best interest of the patient, I think you can have some productive conversations the other part is I would have a heads up conversation, you know, with the patient. Um, sometimes these things do require, um, you know, additional information for approval, such as a letter of medical necessity or a peer to peer review or something. But again, if you feel that that is clearly best for your patient, then I think it pays to go the extra mile and advocate for them. Yeah, really spending the time with your hospital or present or whatever may make a lot of dividends in the end. So uh, wrapping up here, uh, I was just curious, you know, we still feel like have, have, some, have some ways to go with improving meniscal healing. Certainly you mentioned come a long way versus the old darts people used to use or just meniscectomies. Uh, but tell us where you think uh, the future is. Is it continued biologic evaluation? Is it better repair techniques? Um, I totally agree with you with being uh, competent and feeling comfortable with inside out and all the different repair techniques, certainly uh, uh, it starts with a stable fixation, but where do you think the future is with meniscus repair and, and healing? Yeah, I, I think Justin, it's going to be a little bit of everything. You know, I think from an education standpoint, um, you know, when I look at the last 10 to 15 years, um, you know, Anna and arthroscopy, you know, have really been leaders in, you know, teaching the next generation of, of a surgeon, um, you know, excellent repair techniques. Um, second is I think, you know, we as a surgeon are ultimately responsible for, you know, our repair technique and making sure we're performing the best repair possible. And then really on the, on the biology, I think that's where we're going to see, uh, the gains and the breakthroughs. We really need to have a better understanding of the mechanism of meniscus healing. Uh, we know that, you know, MSCs are involved, you know, are they coming from the perivascular cells and the synovium in the meniscus. Um, so I think really strategies, um, old strategies, you know, rasping, trephinating, uh, et cetera, are very important, but maybe looking for new ways to ramp up healing mechanisms uh, that I think will be determined. I think there's groups looking now at, you know, can we somehow isolate meniscus cells, um, combine them with MSCs, to try to enhance healing, or, you know, when we can't repair the meniscus, maybe trying to improve our meniscus transplant biology. I think there's a lot of room to work there, but it's a, it's a great time again to be a meniscus surgeon. I think we're having enough success where it makes it fun and worthwhile, but enough failures where I think we can really go back to the science and try to do better for our patients. Hey, you're right. It is. It's an exciting time. That's like hip arthroscopy and some of these other um, types of uh, procedures that we're making a lot of uh, improvements with techniques. And it's an exciting time and exciting to see what will happen in the next 10, 20 years. So really appreciate you taking your time uh, and sharing your results with us today. And this is pretty complicated uh, modeling uh, technique. And I think it's really interesting to speak about it and how 
you came to come to your results and everything. So we, as you mentioned, need to continue to improve this. And this is a great way to, to uh, start that off. So thanks for your time and really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. Dr. Critch's article titled Platelet-Rich Plasma and Meroventing May Serve as a Cost-Effective Augmentation Technique for Isolated Meniscal Repair, a Decision Analytical Markov Model-Based Analysis is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at arthroscopyjournal.org. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.